Okay, we're going to begin Messy Church. Um, we're not going to do what the Methodists do and do Messy Church with kids getting the paint pots out. It's actually the theme of the study of the Corinthian letters. And um, I'm going to do a teaching series, more teaching than preaching, though there'll be elements of preaching in it. Um, because God laid this on my heart a month or so before Christmas to do in the new year as I was praying about this. Um, today, we're going to essentially do an introduction to the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, largely, it will be teaching content, as I've said. There will be um, four major points to this, but I'll probably only get through two of them, but I do have next week to close it up. And we will be finished for 12 at the latest, probably before then, um, because I want to uh, make sure that we're honouring your time. And also, we want some more time to worship the Lord together. Let me just pray, and then we can get into the material. <clears throat> Lord, we just acknowledge heaven's here. Thank you, Lord. Father, it's so easy to see with our own eyes and forget what you're doing in the invisible realm. So, Lord, help us to see the invisible in this moment. Help us to be aware of you in, as your word is scrutinized, looked at, is deciphered, uh, as we chew on it, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us, Lord, and change our lives. Amen. Okay, so, Messy Church was the phrase that I thought best suited to this epistle, epistle, a letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Uh, there are two of them in the New Testament, the Bible, but a lot of scholars agree there's probably five letters in the exchange, we probably have about three of them. Um, one of the, th the third one is absorbed into the other two. And it was a particular challenge for the Apostle Paul, this church. He spent a year and a half planting it, and then he went away and it became a mess. And to anyone who's got an apostolic heart, if you've birthed a child, your church... You care about that child, your church, that you birthed. And when you hear news that it's not in good shape, it aches in your heart because you expended a lot of energy, a lot of time on your knees to create that. And if it goes awry, there's only people with an apostolic heart who can feel that, who can know that. And I, having planted churches, uh, I know how much churches matter that you birth um, to an apostolic leader. They are, in a sense, your spiritual uh, Daughter Church. Let's go through the geographical historical context of this letter. Now, it, I'll, I'll leave that behind, and I, please don't look at that yet, but you can leave it on. You just listen, and then we'll refer to what's behind me in a minute. When it comes to knowledge about ancient Greece, many people know about the important city-states of Athens and Sparta. I bet you've seen some movies with the Spartans. Give me a wave. Very, very cool. Some of them are a little bit violent, but the Spartans were remarkable. The Athenians were remarkable. But very few people know that, that Corinth was a hugely important city in ancient Greece. It has an incredibly deep, long-standing history. And it, in many respects, it was the epicenter of ancient Greek world. Did you know that? The epicenter. It was a highly important city indeed the very centre of the Greek world, the ancient Greek world. Highly important city-state. Corinth had a very long history and was often at the centre of major events in the ancient Greek world. In about 600 years before Christ, Corinth had naval dominance around that area of 
the, the south of Greece. In the years to come, it would catapult it into being hugely important as a port and trade route, with lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods being built, alongside the various booming trade centres. It was an economic powerhouse. Here's three summary phrases. It was an economic powerhouse, a religious melting pot, and a hedonistic culture like no other at the time in the ancient world. It's, they had a phrase back in the day when Paul would have travelled to Corinth, and it was to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize. The most recent sort of similarity to that is, I never saw it, but I saw the fil film or the series advertised on television called Californication. I don't know if you, if you saw that advertised, never watched the series, but I thought that's more like a modern equivalent of to Corinthianize. It was a debauched city-state, and the reasons for that. The influence of Greek and Roman gods on the city had a massive impact on its moral climate. There's an example of that in the Acro-Corinth. The Acro-Corinth was a large hill that dominated the cityscape. So it was right there overlooking the city, and at the top of the Acro-Corinth, this 1,850-foot hill, was a temple to the Greek god Aphrodite. Now, we could go into the beautiful boys of Apollo, the male prostitutes, but let's just focus on, on one deity. A thousand, temple a thousand temple prostitutes serviced the temple to Aphrodite, who would ply their trade round the clock. And they would be hired by wealthy, unscrupulous priests and other people, businessmen as well, who would essentially, through their trade, pull in money for the gods. Okay? When evening fell every night, <clears throat> thousand prostitutes would descend on the city to get trade. Now, if that doesn't shock you as a culture for the Apostle Paul to invade, I think we can rejoice that, thankfully, for all the chaos in Europe, we don't yet have such a wicked state of affairs encircling our Christianity. We often think we're in the darkest time in Christian spiritual history. The Apostle Paul was literally a hero. He targeted Corinth. He was intentional about going to Corinth. People often get overly spiritual about whether they are to plant a church in a particular place. Now, the Lord can speak about where to go, and it's usually the best when he does, but everybody needs the gospel. And I remember Steve Hill, who's one of my greatest heroes, a preacher and evangelist in the 1990s, trained under Leonard Ravenhill, amazing man of God. He worked with some of the great revivalists in Argentina, and they said, Steve, why did you plant churches down that road with that particular Argentinian? He said, because there weren't any churches there. It's as spiritual as it gets. Uh, just a head up, I feel in the Lord I've got to plant into Liverpool sometime in the future. I feel like God's told me to do that. I feel he's actually drawn a circle around where I've got to plant. I'm not going to go and run and do that. I'm not anxious to do that. I'm going to set this house in order before we can plant out again. But God wants us to be viral in church planting because the most effective evangelism strategy, biblically, biblically, is planting new churches for new believers, new communities of faith. Apostle Paul took a year and a half to plant this place. It was a wicked place. It was a place of great prosperity. And often when there's great prosperity and hedonism, people forget God 
and they become their own gods. He's a self-made man, and he worships his creator. I'll let that hang a minute so it goes in. David got it. He's a self-made man, and he worships his creator. This is the sort of place it was. By the time we get to the first century AD, and the events we read about in the Corinthian letters, Corinth had become highly prosperous, and its geographical position was a must-pass-through city. You had to pass through it for various reasons. One of them is that, as you can see on the map there, there was a narrow, what you call, Isthmian Peninsula. Can you see the gap there? It's like a bit like Anglesey, we have to cross over, in a sense, a very narrow space. This became, in the late 19th century, the Isthmian Canal. You can just about see it up. Can you see the crossing point? Like a red line across? Nero tried to create that canal for ships to go through, but he failed. It was a real challenge, and it was only completed in the late 19th century, and it was still working up to the last few years. It's temporarily closed because of a landslide in the locality, but it's still used to this day. Why is it used to this day? Because if you look at the map where that square is in the corner, if you're in an ancient world sailor and you're trying to take merchant goods across, you would have to sail under, underneath the Peloponnese to the Mayan Peninsula all the way round to the other side to get to the um, Lechian port, which is that white dot on the other side. So instead of going all the way around the peninsula, from, they would cross from the Saronic Gulf there to this point. And it's not on the map, but Cancria, I think you'll see it on the map up there, would be the place where most ships would dock. And they would either take ships across on rollers if they were smaller ships, or they would offload the ships and load on again in Lechio. Okay. Why is this important to the study of 1 Corinthians? Because geographically it was a passing point to Athens. You can see the black arrow in the corner, major city, and, and all the way down the Peloponnese. Either way, a trade route would always cross through Corinth. It's also quite a mountainous region as well. Near, near, near that area. So it was a really... Ge geography made you go through Corinth. Commerce made you go through Corinth. Religious worship made you go through Corinth. Even apart from the, the Olympic Games at Athens, the major sporting event of the ancient world was the Isthmian Games. So this was a hotbed. This is like Paul saying, I'm going to plant a church in London. This is, or let's say Birmingham. Birmingham is a better example. I'm going to plant in a major city and I'm going to take on all the gods and all the challenges of godlessness, and I'm going to do it with <laughs> my own bare hands. He was some hero of the Apostle Paul, a real hero of the faith. All of this traffic in Corinth's importance in the ancient world history made it Paul's apostolic target, who spent one and a half years there as a missionary, as I've said. Many people responded to the gospel message through the Apostle Paul's missional endeavours and became followers of Christ. If you want to read about this, you'll find it in Acts chapter 18 this week. It's worth a little read. Acts 18 and verse 8 of 18 says that he led many to Christ. Paul was a great evangelist as well as an apostle. After Paul moved on from his one and a half year stay at Corinth, he started to get reports that things were not going as well as when he was with them said that, didn't he, to the Ephesian elders, I know when I leave, wolves will come in. And this happened to him again in Corinth. Things were not going well back at the church in Corinth, which was the reason he wrote the first letter. Can I have the next slide? Actually, go back a minute. I missed one. It's totally unrelated to the, to the letter. 
that black pottery there is just an example, a bit random, but those who like it, if, if you like bargain hunts and all that stuff, that was the artisan craft of Corinth, and it's the most famous piece of craftsmanship in ancient Greece. It was called black pottery, for obvious reasons. Okay, next slide. That's just random, but for anyone who's into that stuff, likes a bit of um, artifact study. Okay, so the, the letter itself is split into five main areas. Division in the church, sexual sin in the church, food sacrifice to idols, failures in corporate worship, and arguments over the resurrection. Chapter 16 as well holds a final um, goodbye, really. I don't like the word greeting. Okay. In all instances, Paul describes the problem in each one of these sections, and then he shows the Corinthians that they're not living out what they believe by responding to the problem with part of the gospel message. Let me say that again. Paul describes the problem in each of these sections and then shows the Corinthians that they're not living out what they believe by responding to the problem with part of the gospel message. What do I want to say in response to that? The gospel really fixes things. The gospel really fixes things. So today, let's consider Paul's teaching, which targets division in the Corinthian church. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, if you've got your Bibles. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with every, those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus, for in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. Am I a bit echoey, boards? Is it because it, what's going on? Is it too close? Problem, the problem of having a jumper. Excuse me, I'm going to turn myself off before. Let me read that Thanksgiving section again from verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some of you, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this. 
One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank my God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that, they, that you were baptized in my name. Yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. I had to smile when I was reading this. He's like, I didn't baptize many of you. And then he starts listing them off. He's like, what a proper hero, this guy. Stephanas, beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's really good to hear some of the things that are in there. Some of them are a little bit more challenging to our mindsets. But one of the things that we must, before we get into any of the main material, is realise that church is messy. Right? If, if, we, if we think we ever arrive at any future juncture before Jesus returns, we are miles away. And what's really exciting to me and really encouraging to me is the Apostle Paul who lists all of those depravities of the church, all that brokenness of the church, division, sexual immorality, disputes over the resurrection, disputes over leadership, and so on. He says this, I am confident that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in spite of all the mess that he's about to take on, Paul says in verse 1, I thank my God because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus. See how positive he is at the beginning. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Now, before you move on swiftly to the more challenging aspects of this, just think about that for the minute. This is a church, reading on, that didn't lack any any spiritual gift. Right. I heard of a church in America that had a resurrections department. You might laugh, I laugh, I think it's funny. But this is the sort of church that Corinth had. They had a church that was on fire, but broken. You know, so often in the past, we we can presume that supernatural giftedness is given to those who deserve it by virtue of their spirituality. Can we just kill that notion now? I feel his presence as I'm saying this. The Lord's pleased with that, what I've just said. We have to recognise that everything a person carries for God came by grace through faith. Not of works, so no one can boast. Anyone who carries something for the Lord, we wonder why they carry it sometimes, or why doesn't he use me like that? But the Bible says God gives the gifts by the Spirit severally as he wills, and it's ultimately for his glory. And rather than criticizing the carrier of the gift or glorifying the carrier of the gift, we recognize, as Paul will teach later in this epistle, that it is the body of Christ set up for the glory of God. We won't get into it in the reading today, but if you go home and read the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were so gifted 
that they were strutting around like peacocks with their power. Jedis for Jesus. It says in chapter 4, you say that you are kings. I wish that we could come and be kings with you so that we could reign with you. The apostles are like those led around in the arena captive. He's contrasting his own life, which is not glamorous. Anyone who aspires to Christian ministry, pulpit time, or being a leader in a church, trust me, it's only the call that keeps you. It is not glamorous. There are many times when you want to go back fishing. If you've not ended up in that place as a Christian leader, you probably haven't made a dint for the enemy, against the enemy. It is, it is essential that we understand that serving the Lord, as the Apostle Paul did, is very, very difficult. In fact, when Paul, the Apostle Paul was called, it says that he was to be told by the prophetic voice that you're going to suffer many things for me. That was, that was the voice to the Apostle Paul. That was the first thing he heard in his ears when he was called. To be an apostle, you're going to suffer very many things. The more a person goes on in order to keep them humble, in order to keep the giftedness that's on their life within the right context of Christ-glorifying rather than self-glorifying, people suffer. So, so if you aspire to a particular giftedness or you aspire to a particular anointing, know that usually, not always, usually, with anointing comes suffering. There's a nice cheery message for Sunday. With anointing comes suffering. It's the only way God keeps a person in the right place. And this happened clearly to the Apostle Paul. But let's be encouraged that the Apostle Paul, who suffered much more than these baby Jedis for Jesus, who were gifted by the grace of God, he's telling them with the heart of a father, you'll be okay on the last day judgment. Can we be encouraged by that? Can we be encouraged by that? Listen, church, there was sexual immorality in the church. There was division all the way through the church. I preached at a church in the summer. I won't say the church. I've never seen this before, right? But again, as you go on, you just learn more and more of the grace of God on your own life and the fact that you smile that God even bothers to use you, but also in the church of Jesus Christ. And I was preaching at this church. I was the guest speaker. And... On the platform, I shouldn't laugh, but it was, it was almost like, like watching a sitcom. The worship leaders falling out with a keyboard player, big auditorium. And they're not just having words. Not just having, this is in the worship. They're not just having words. There's angry eyes going on. And I'm thinking, I'm the preacher on the front row. I'm thinking, like, I get it that we can fall out. Don't do it there, you know. And then what, what, I, what I found even more amusing was that the Holy Ghost, this is beautiful, the Holy Ghost was blowing through that church like a hurricane. Hallelujah. 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 Isn't that beautiful? Grace of God. And this is where Paul is with this church. He's saying, guys, you know what? You've got everything. All kinds of logos, all kinds of gnosis, 
Because they pride those words, gnosis, like Gnostic religion, hidden knowledge, anti-spiritual. You've got all this hidden knowledge, this ability to, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, word of prophecy, inspired utterance, power gifts, miracles, signs. Wow, aren't you special? You've got it all, logos, gnosis. And then this was his underlined point, and I've underlined it in the text, verse 6 of chapter 1. Do you know what this is, Corinthians, says Paul? This is God confirming our testimony about Jesus amongst you. In other words, the reason you've got this power, the reason you've got this ability to speak by the Spirit is because the gospel's true. And the Spirit's been released. And that's why it goes into verse 7 and says, you don't like any spiritual gift. Interesting phrase that follows, as you eagerly await for the return of the Lord Jesus. It seems that there is this coupled nature between expectation of the return of the Lord and giftedness spiritually. Because the expectation for the return of the Lord, eagerly waiting for the return of the Lord, turns your heart to heaven, and the fire of God comes on you, irrespective of performance. So quite often we are struggling with our flesh, we're struggling with relationships, we're struggling with our diet, we're struggling, is this just me? Struggling, <laughs> struggling with lack of exercise, struggling with the dog, struggling with the cat, struggling with, struggling with the finances, struggling in the work. But the grace of God's on our life through Jesus. I don't have a cat. Most of the rest was true. <laughs> Verse 8. He will keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 8. He will keep you. Wow. Isn't that encouraging? And I've said it about three times, but I just want it to go in. Wherever you're feeling up to today, God will keep you firm to the end. What a beautiful thought. So that it, you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you for, into the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a beautiful way to start an epistle that's dealing with challenges. What a saviour. Can you turn to someone today? This is the cheesy moment that some people go, no, I'm not doing that. Not doing that. I hate it when people say that when they're preaching. And you turn to someone or just mutter under your breath some sort of grumbling complaint against the preacher. Turn to someone near to you if you've got the ability to do that. And say, the Lord will save you in spite of your mess. Can we say that? The Lord will save you in spite of your mess. Hallelujah. I'm trying to hear now, in my insecurity, who's muttering against the preacher. <laughs> You see, you see, the truth is we, we've all got mess. I don't care how good a Christian you are. We've all got mess in our life. We're all less than the finished article. And there's pain behind every door. I think about this when I jog, which is very rare. <laughs> I also think about this when I uh, walk the dog, which is more common now. <laughs> But the fact is that we've all got mess. <laughs> and we'd all agree with that. I don't need your... It's the truth. When churches, and it's churches all over the world, not just family church, when church people come together, they take their mess and make a pot of mess with the other messy people. Right? So that is church life. That's this age. God, preachers often say, no perfect people allowed on the back of our door. Because the reality is... No one in the Bible was perfect but Jesus. Nobody in this room is perfect. And God uses imperfect people. Hallelujah. 
Isn't that good? That's great news. So the gospel fixes everything, even messy church. Turn to someone next to you and mumble against the preacher (laughs) and say the gospel fixes everything. For some, even if that's five people in the room, they remember that. There you go. Bless my little corn socks. Now, the gospel fixes everything. And the first thing Paul wants to address of the five issues in Corinthian church, chapters one to four for you to study when you go home or sometime this week. And I really would ask you to read this because I'm not going to get through all the material today. So I'm largely going to pick this up again next Sunday. I'm going to go through, if you go to the next slide, these four points over the next couple of weeks. So the plea for unity from St. Paul, the parties of division, the principle of oneness in Christ, and the priority of preaching the cross. It's great preaching through the word, isn't it? Teaching through the word, one step at a time. You can't duck anything, it smacks you on the nose, and usually the preacher gets first punch (laughs) when he's preparing. Okay. Verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. What is this? Well, there were visiting speakers who came through town after Paul left, and it had created a sectarian spirit where groupies gathered around a particular leader. So there was various factions. It was sectarian, the church. It was, I like Paul, I like Cephas, I like Apollo, I'm I'm part of the Christ party. And these divisions were meaning that particular, and we'll go into them in a minute, particular groups within the church fostered different ways of being church together. And there was no cohesion as a result of it. And as much as we're going to look at that there, their experience speaks into our brokenness both locally in our church and in the church of Jesus Christ globally. The first way the Apostle Paul exhorts those in the church in Corinth who were in division to sort out the division and deal with the division was to present the plea of God's Holy Spirit for unity through his writing. He pleaded with them that there'd be no schisms. It's actually the Greek word, schismata, that we'll read about in a minute. That's where we get schism from. No divisions amongst them, but that they all be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, remember that this is something that can't come about by church constitutions or statement of faith. We can't all be in agreeing on things. And even let's not be overly romantic and Disney about this. The Apostle Paul liked to be a bit argumentative for right reasons. Jesus was combative in his style with religiosity. It's not just all Disney and flowers, this. There's a difference between being a peacekeeper and being a peacemaker. Peacekeepers sweep stuff under the carpet, peacemakers deal with the issues. We don't want a false unity or a false ecumenism. There's sort of sense of all churches are right, everyone's right, your doctrine's right, that doctrine's right. We all stick together, we're all in one little happy club, and it becomes more of a humanitarian organisation a humanist organization, should I say, than a church. We're not talking about that. We're talking about centering ourselves on the cross of Jesus, which is where we'll land next week. He pleaded with the Corinthians, Paul, that there be no schisms amongst them. So 
what is the way that he did that? He said, I want you to hear the plea of the Holy Spirit through my words. What is the plea of the Holy Spirit through the words of Paul? I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions. The Greek word, as I said, is schismata. That's where we get schism from. And it's used for the word split as well. The phrase perfectly joined together that follows is a phrase used for knitting broken bones. Give me a wave if you've ever broken a bone. Oh my goodness, there's so many broken bones in this room. When I was in my teen years, I was like, I threw myself into every sport and broke virtually every bone. Broke my nose, broke my finger, punching someone, dislocated my thumb, dislocated the shoulder 13 times, dislocated the shoulder, broke my foot, broke my arm. Nice. It leaves you in, when you're in your 40s, feeling a little bit like you need a medic. <laughs> but the thing that I've wrote down here is that the difference between dislocation and break is a break aches, a dislocation screams. Give me a wave if you've had a dislocation. Okay, let's see it really high so we can have a moment together of catharsis. Yeah. So dislocation... The only way I can describe it is it screams at you until it's put right. I remember going to, some of you will remember this lady. I don't even know why I'm mentioning her name. Again, this might be cathartic. I went to Mrs. Petch's office. She was a deputy head teacher. I said, Miss, <laughs> I've dislocated my thumb. And she said, how do you know you've done that, Stephen? Because I, I can put my thumb up when I put my hand down. <laughs> if I do that, I've still got my thumb up. She went, oh, 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 quick. Get the <laughs> But all the time I had to sit in my dad's car to the hospital and it was screaming at me. I remember once when I went over an inflatable recently, 2019, popped this shoulder, I couldn't believe it. I'd done this one 13 times and then I did this one falling off an inflatable when the lifeguards were all squirting water at us. Stupid man. I was, I was in that much pain. This lifeguard who was twice my size, I said, just pull my arm, put it back in like this. And I was so assertive to this lifeguard. He went, I, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> like this. And so I, was, I walked into Barrow Infirmity, Infirmary, Infirmity, like this with my shoulder out, with a foil blanket on, because Rachel carried me in and the pain and the scream all the way through. I looked like an ugly Aquaman coming into the... <laughs> <laughs> into the, this woman who was busy at a desk looked up and went she said where have you come from she thought I'd climbed out of the dock or something because we'd come from a swimming pool nearby not from the, the sea that was just next to the infirmary but the, the point in making those silly stories is that I know what it's like for your joint to be screaming at you until it gets back in it's different like Breaks, they're like bruises. Ow, that hurts. Dislocations scream. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to target in the church. I've called it an ecclesiological paralysis. What do I mean by that? I mean the church does not move until it's dealt with. Have you seen Woody in Toy Story? It's a shame there's no children in there. Stuck on the... You know, because you've got kids. Stuck on the shelf. There's, there's no proactive, effective movement until it's back in the socket. This is what happens with dislocation. The scream will remain until there's a rejoining. When have you experienced division in your life? Sometimes 
some people go beyond a division and it becomes an amputation. That's horrific. Relational breakdown, marriage splits, etc., etc., etc. I won't press your buttons any more than that. But ultimately, in the church, Paul knew that he could he could help the Corinthians get that joint back in. It wasn't yet severed. It wasn't yet amputated. He could help them come together again. In many respects, the way he dealt with this was to draw the difference between being a spiritual Christian and being a carnal Christian. And he said to them, if you've got kind of a groupy mentality about leaders you prefer over other leaders, you're carnal. That's what he says in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. You're carnal. If you value particular leaders and what they bring to the table, then you're spiritual because you're seen with the eyes of Christ. Because Christ puts the body of Christ together. He puts every form of leader intentionally, like he does in the world, actually, biblically, the world. There's no one with any position of authority that God hasn't placed, which is a bit of a head match with some leaders. But God puts people in, and the carnal Christian says, I prefer you to you. The spiritual Christian says, I see why God did that. I see why God did that. And this is the difference here. Paul is saying, I want you to see by the spirit, not by the eyes of the flesh. Division goes by goes beyond the local church too. There are many things that so there are many things that there aren't many things that so effectively undermine our Christian witness than disconnect between denominations in the eyes of the world. Remember, Jesus said, "This, this is how the world will know that I was sent by the Father." If you are, if you have love for one another, but also that it sees you as one, that I may be one, that they may be one, as we are one, I in them. And speaking of John 17 here, togetherness of the church is a major witness vehicle for the Lord in the world. For the world to see the church disconnected, separated, what it sees is different religions. I don't know if you've ever filled in a form and seen what religion are you, is the question. And then it will list Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic, C of E, or Anglican, Baptist, other, which other, non-denominational or Pentecostal or, you know. But why is it describing it as other religions? It's other religions, isn't it? In Jesus' economy, the global church is one entity. We might say, though, oh, he's a Methodist. We might label someone. <clears throat> She's a Catholic. He's a Presbyterian. Or my auntie's a Lutheran. See, the world is confused with that kind of tribalism. And Jesus didn't create that. We did. You know that. And to go on from what the Apostle Paul says to them in this section, it's born of the flesh and not of the spirit. Listen to these quotes about great Christian leaders who didn't like the idea of the denominations they birthed. Martin Luther said on one occasion, I pray you leave my name alone. Do not call yourselves Lutherans, but Christians. What a comment. John Wesley said, the founder of Methodism, I wish the name Methodist might never be mentioned again, but lost in eternal oblivion. Do you see the heart of these people? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a Baptist, said, I say of the Baptist name, let it perish and let Christ's own name last forever. I look forward with pleasure to the day when there will be no more Baptist living. I hope we read it as Spurgeon intended it. He's not wishing ill intent on the Baptists. He's wanting Baptists not to be known as Baptists, but Christians or Christ followers. This is the heart of people who the Lord used to birth great things 
And it leads us to the point that we know that there'll be no more denominations in heaven. We know that. We say that. No more denominations in our eternal future. Not also non, non-denominational churches either. Because we almost get denominational in our non-denominational places. We, 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 we go, we, think, oh, we, we, we don't have a liturgy. We don't go through a program of the way we worship. And then we just do the same stuff every Sunday. That's our unwritten liturgy. Opening song. <laughs> notices worship block kids go out preach a little bit of a prayer ministry time coffee off we go home back to our life and we compartmentalize our life and we have an unwritten liturgy may we celebrate what's good in other denominations or those who claim to be non-denominational but not destroy unity by assigning them to less than ourselves If you know me, if you get close to me, I often champion quite provocatively denominations that Pentecostal charismatics would bin. And it's quite commonplace to bin certain denominations because we think we're the more enlightened ones. And then you just have to start studying a little bit. Study the works of people like Richard Foster, who points to the monastic tradition that we thought, oh no, that's a bit. God never called you to go away in a monastery and live out in silence and solitude away from. He meant to go into all the world. And then we start studying the silence and solitude of the monastic tradition and realize these people seriously know God and they turn the cogs of human history to bring missional advance for the church globally and God uses them in their setting. And so we, we are very judgmental. We are very prideful, actually, in our p- belief that we, we are the ones with the ultimate and the best truth. And therein is the problem for all division. It's rooted in pride and insecurity. I'll mention that again in a minute. So, so we move from this sense of Paul's plea for unity to get that dislocation sorted. He then talks about who the parties of division are, and this is where we'll land for today. <clears throat> Unfortunately to you, you'll have to wait for next week to look at the priority of preaching the cross and how the gospel heals everything, but at least you can study that next week. The second way that we saw Paul deal with disunity within the assembly, within the church at large, is to locate the parties of that division whatever the division may be. In Corinth, particularly in verse 11 and 12, we saw this. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels amongst you. What I mean is this. One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Paul had received a word from three messengers from Chloe's household, and there were strifes and quarrels, that there were strifes and quarrels amongst them. And chiefly, there were four parties, which I mentioned before. Let's just briefly look at those four parties of division. There was the Paul party, not the pool party, that's something else. There was the Paul party. These were the ones who we think were probably following Paul's gospel of grace, probably. But what does that lead to if it's, if it's a hyper-grace idea? It leads to licentiousness and antinomianism. What does that mean? It means there's no law. I can do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. I'm under grace. God loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. So really, I'm covered by the blood and my lifestyle can be anything it wants to be because I'm accepted in the beloved. This is probably where the Paul party ended up in that sort of no law Christianity. Of course, the spirit is the law of life for the Christian and should lead us into holiness In fact, if you can live a sinful lifestyle without feeling the the conviction of the Holy Spirit to get certain areas of your life right, you're probably not saved. And I don't mean that to beat up on anyone, but that therein is the one identity mark of the Christian for Paul in Galatians and Ephesians and to a degree in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 is 
the presence of the Holy Spirit, which should lead us into holiness. So the Paul party probably had awful sins rattling around that community with ideas. This idea that God had forgiven them and would cleanse all the future sins might have made them susceptible to all the various sins of Corinth. We don't know this is a fact, but that's probably the case. The the Apollos party, what's that all about? Well, Apollos was a great orator. He was the intellectual one from Alexandria in Egypt. See, you you will have a natural affinity to certain speaker types. Some people, I just want it simple. Keep it simple. Others, I I like deep. And the reality is, this is what's going on here. People are just being preferential in what they like. They choose almost consumer Christianity in the first century. And Paul, this educated man, was one probably who the Greeks who valued this rhetoric, this I'm, I'm clever. Do you know, instead of going to the cinema, they'd listen to people speak in, the, in lecture halls. That was their entertainment. This is probably going to float the boat of most Greeks. That's probably where piety and intellectualism came together within the Church of Corinth. <clears throat> that pride in knowledge. You know, you have everything of knowledge and um, power, Paul says. Intellectual group, the Apollos party. The Cephas party were probably probably Jews, those who wanted to still follow the law, who wanted to still get all of their little group circumcised in the men's area and go through all the Jewish laws and rituals and ceremony and practice, perhaps a legalistic sect within the church. And then there was the Christ party, the most pious of the lot, pompous and hypocritical of all who say, I am of Christ, who do not follow a man. In fact, we don't follow the authoritarianism or hierarchy of any men, the Christ party might say. We belong to ourselves, but we follow Christ. Very easy, that. That's a very common... I've seen that in the Christian church. Some of the churches that I've led, I remember my predecessor and the elders that I took on had suffered a series of abuse from a particular family. And there was one family not under authority of the elders, and they were very abusive of the elders, and I had to challenge it. And this is maybe the hyper-spirituality that says, Jesus is my, my line to heaven, leaders don't matter. And what that really is behind that leaders don't matter, the Christ party, is a rebellion to authority. It masked behind super-spirituality. That is likely to be what's going on with the Christ party. So these are all the parties that Paul would locate in the church in Corinth, but really... We could narrow it all down to this. Paul is telling them that there are two types of people in the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth. And I've mentioned this before, the spiritual and the carnal. I'm really trying to get done for 12. I did promise you that. What what caused the division between the carnal Christians of Corinth? I think fundamentally, and this is where divisions come from us, you'll see it in James chapter 4 as well, pride and insecurity. Pride and insecurity. How do I know if I'm proud or insecure? Here's my question to myself when I was writing the message. How do I know if I'm proud or insecure? Well, the question I would ask myself is, am I critical? If I'm critical of other people, that means I'm prideful too. Because criticism is the ultimate manifestation of pride because it assumes superiority. Criticism is one of the ultimate manifestations of pride 
because it assumes superiority on whatever level. Strange bedfell of criticism is insecurity. Criticism beats down. Insecurity pulls down. Insecurity says, well, you come down to my level of self-rejection, maybe subconsciously unaware of it. Pride says, you're not fit to stand with me. You've got holes in your life and your walk. The two reasons why there was division in the church and within those different parties was probably pride and criticism. Anthony T. Evans said, the Church of Jesus Christ worldwide today remains the most segregated aspect of Western society. Did you hear that? It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. That's not what Jesus built. It's even more ironic, and maybe this, this is a place to question our own hearts, that those perhaps who oppose the segregation of Christianity, who champion unity don't particularly like the delineation of denominations. They might use the phrase, the abomination of denomination. Those are the people often who are most exclusive, think they know the right theology, and those who are the most divisive themselves because they're right and everyone else is wrong. Well, to be honest, the more I study, the less I know. The more I studied, the more that the, the, I found this when I did master's level theology. It fell through my fingers like sand, what I thought I believed. People say, don't go to Bible college, you'll lose your faith. No, no, you'll lose, if you do it right and in the spirit of the Lord, you'll lose the things that are really not that important. What is important? The cross, the spirit. Jesus died for me, Jesus died for you. And God gives me his spirit to unite the church and empower the church to tell people. And most Christian denominations have that. I was, and I'll close with this, I was at a wonderful, wonderful evangelical church over Christmas. It was rammed. It was rammed. Hundreds and hundreds of people. You get more at Christmas, but they have kind of over 100 people in their little Sunshine Club equivalent. Kids, I mean, children over 100 children in their Sunshine Club equivalent. Is it called Conkers or something? Is it Conkers? Acorns. I knew it was something like that. <laughs> I knew it fell off a tree. <laughs> and, I, and I was sitting there as somebody inclined to Pentecostal faith and tradition, loving the spirit, loving the fact that I'm in my lane. But I was internally thanking God for that church and how wonderful they were, how much of a credit they were to Jesus. I know that. They were. And then the, the guy who led it, he was a young guy, and I said, I went up to him after I had to do it, I couldn't help myself. I said, mate, that was fantastic. Just give him a hand. He said, really wanted to encourage him because pastors don't often get encouraged. And you could see he was dead emotional because I was a bit over the top, but it, I meant what I said, I was sincere. And then we were talking about the church, and it came out, he led Messy Church too. Because there isn't any other type of church. I didn't share anything about our church, but he was clearly showing me it's not all quite as pretty as it is on the surface. But what we do know is that kingdom plants are growing in that garden. And the Lord is present among the people, regardless of what they teach on the spirit. The gospel is being preached, and we must love and value people from every tradition 
that claims Christ died for the sins of the world and is coming again. Amen. Bless you.